Welcome to Justice Visions, the podcast about everything that is new in the domain of transitional justice. Justice Visions is hosted at the Human Rights Centre of Ghent University. For more information, visit justicevisions.org. Welcome to Justice Visions. My name is Tine de Strooper and I am the regular host of this podcast. And in this third season of the podcast, we take a closer look at what certain theoretical concepts mean for the practice of transitional justice and for the daily lives of victims of human rights violations. And today we will talk about the notion of participation, which really goes to the core of our Justice Visions research project. So in this episode, we'll talk about what exactly we mean by participation in transitional justice. And my two guests today will propose a new way to conceptualize the notion of participation in a way that is more closely aligned with victims' experiences. They'll also talk about how this applies to a concrete case in the Guatemalan setting. And the two guests that I'm talking about here uh, today are Justice Visions colleagues and co-authors of a recent paper on this topic. Welcome Gretel Mejia Bonifaci and Elke Evrar. Thank you, Tine. Thank you, Tine. And perhaps, Gretel, you can start by sharing a bit more about why exactly we are doing this episode today. Yes, definitely, Tine. I'm actually very happy to be talking to you from the Guatemalan Highlands, where I have been conducting fieldwork over the past months. I am working here with the Kokop community located in the Ishil region. This community was one of the first to experience a state-led massacre in April 1981 in the context of the internal armed conflict. Uh, during this conflict, uh, which lasted from 1960 to 1996, state-organized violence, political repression and killings targeting indigenous communities and political opponents were widespread and systematic. The Kokop massacre in this context, is one of 600 massacres that took place during the conflict. Uh, it resulted in 79 deaths, including uh, women and children. And ever since, the survivors of the massacre have tirelessly pursued truth, justice, and reparations. For example, also by participating in various formal and informal transitional justice mechanisms. So, Gretel, that's a horrifying reality, and it must be an incredibly difficult struggle, and, and we'll definitely talk more about that in a moment. Um, but you're already hinting at this issue of, of participation in transitional justice mechanisms. And so I would actually want to turn to Elke first to hear about the other reason um, why we are doing this episode on participation today. So Elke, could you say a bit more about that maybe? As you mentioned in the intro, we have co-authored a paper on victim participation that was published over the summer which also used the Guatemalan setting as an example case, but mainly on the basis of existing literature and our existing knowledge. So it was quite compelling, actually, to see the ideas we developed in this paper come to life in Gretel's current work with the COCOP community. Right. And Gretel, I actually recall that during some of our early conceptual discussions within the Justice Visions research project. It was you who shared some observations and some comments about the Guatemalan context that made us realize that the existing frameworks, the existing models that we use for describing, for evaluating victim participation, that they often do not reveal the entire picture, right? Why is that? Well, in Guatemala, like in other typical cases of transitional justice, the pre-existing mobilization of victims groups was a major driver in the establishment of transitional justice mechanisms in the first place. There are many different groups and organizations of survivors, families of victims, who have been very active in the decades since the end of the conflict and who have participated in many different spaces, 
some of them organized by the state, the Catholic Church, or other spaces created by civil society organizations or communities themselves. But uh, not all victims have chosen to participate in all of these different initiatives. But also, different spaces often have served different purposes and intentions. And the strategies of the victims have shifted after, over time. So only looking at participation in formal mechanisms or even defining victim participation purely from the point of view of a specific, a determined transitional justice mechanism or institution or legal tool doesn't really align with these live realities on the ground. Mm. So basically what you're saying um, is that reality on the ground, of course, is much more complex, uh, much more messy than typical participatory models or typologies and what they can account for, right? Exactly. Uh, and this complexity is the reason that we want to look at this phenomenon from the perspective of participants instead to reflect the way survivors themselves choose, shape and experience their participation. We want to shed light on participants' trajectories throughout all of the initiatives, moments and spaces available to them that make up a sort of transitional justice ecosystem. So this is the basis uh, for the alternative model or framework that we propose in the article. And in this episode, we want to highlight some of the central elements in this framework. Right. And so, Elke, this article you mentioned, we should say that for the listeners, which is available in open access in the International Journal of Transitional Justice. In this article, the framework which is being proposed for thinking about victim participation, that is based on this idea that you just mentioned of participatory trajectories of a transitional justice ecosystem. But what's interesting to me, um, Gretel, is um, you mentioned that you've also found that these aren't just theoretical ideas that work well in academic papers. You've also found that this captures the perspectives and the experiences of members of the COCOP community better. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Indeed, Tine. Um, throughout my fieldwork, I focused on the long trajectory of survivors who, after many years of displacement, have returned to the Kokop community after the massacre. In focus groups discussions with members of the community, for example, we use the metaphor of a road or a camino in Spanish to describe their search for truth, justice, reparations and redress in general, right? So we use photos of their trajectory to visualize this road. Uh, we did not conceive of this road as linear or as leading to one clear endpoint, right? Uh, the road could split, can take twists and turns and be unfinished. It has led past different stops and various spaces and it's lined with blockages and obstacles and so on. So there are also different actors who have accompanied them on this road. It all sounds really fascinating. And since this season is precisely about you know, thinking about what theoretical constructs mean, for the practice of transitional justice. What you're saying also makes me wonder if you could say a bit more about how um, having this more accurate theoretical model, how that helped you to understand better what you were observing in the field. I believe actually that using this framework uh, has helped reveal um, interest, interesting insights that otherwise have remained unseen. For example, it broadens our perspective to look at who we consider as participants, what initiatives or spaces we pay attention to, how we think about the temporality of participation and uh, even what sort of outcomes we can or should expect. It really means that we have uh, this framework to study victim participation from an actor-oriented uh, point of view, 
rather than from an institutional perspective solely. So having done that in today's episode, I also want to share some excerpts of insightful conversations I have had on these topics with two particular survivors of the Ecocop massacre. So could you say a bit more about who these people are, what their profile is? We'll be hearing first from Juan Cobo Brito, who is the current vice president of the Ecocop Victim Committee, which was formed in the year 2000. And during the massacre, many of his relatives were killed and he was shot and became disabled as a result. Uh, in addition, we will also uh, listen from Juana Santiago Cedillo. Her family was killed during the Cocop massacre and after living for 20 years in Guatemala City, she returned to Nevaj and has been very active in seeking redress. These are uh, horrific stories. Um, I'm talking about justice and the quest for justice and participation in justice processes. It must be um, so difficult, but these people, they agreed nevertheless to be interviewed both for your research project and for this episode, right? Uh, yes, and we, we conducted these conversations in Spanish, uh, but for the purposes of this episode, a uh, voiceover is provided in English uh, by two Guatemalan persons, Mauro Morales and Ana Paula Oshon. And so, Gretel, one of the topics you addressed with Juan, for example, was this um, definition of who counts as or who can become a participant in formal TJ mechanisms. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, formal mechanisms uh, will establish particular criteria or boundaries that determine who can or cannot participate in the capacity of victim. So these de definitions can be exclusionary. And if we as researchers would also adopt these de um, formal definitions to determine who is included and excluded in our own research, we actually risk to perpetrate those blind spots as well. So it's a very different thing to start from the self-identification of actors instead, including those who have not been acknowledged as victims or are not allowed to participate in informal mechanisms. Some of these complexities are clearly illustrated in Juan's account. Uh, as I mentioned, he was a victim of the massacre and afterwards he was also forced to patrol his own community. Like other members of these civil defense patrols in the context of the Guatemalan armed conflict, Juan uh, also received a modest compensation from the state. However, because of this payment, this compensation, he was no longer considered eligible to take part in the national reparations program for the victims of the armed conflict, which prevented him from obtaining meaningful reparations under this scheme. Porque nosotros fuimos a, en la patrulla que dieron because we were forced to patrol and they gave us 5,000 quetzales. 5,000 quetzales, that, that is not enough to build a house. We can only buy something to eat with that because we do not have food. So what can we do, they think? Now we have paid, we have paid 5,000 quetzales to each person, they said. But it is not that. No, it is a right. We have the right to five other reparation measures. One, the houses. The others, economic compensation and other projects. There are five measures. So this tension, one argues, became a severe obstacle in his participatory trajectory as a whole. It is a trap that they have left in the road. Well, it is an obstacle because they say, we have already paid. If we paid, why do we have to pay? Wrong. Because we are not begging for money. The government has an obligation to pay for what they did. 
What's his name? The government of Lucas Garcia did it. They killed us and now they have to pay. Pay because it is a right. It is a right because they killed our parents, our wives, they killed everyone. And now they don't want to pay. We have a right. They have to build the houses for the people, for everyone. They have to build the houses and everything, absolutely everything, because it is an obligation. So what Juan describes in, in this intervention, to me, it also indicates that survivors may have experiences um, and needs which are very different um, and, and which can range from, uh, their needs can range from housing to monetary compensation to acknowledgement. Um, what I also found striking is that it, indicates to me also or, or illustrates that some needs may become more or less urgent as time passes or they may be different from one victim victim to the next or from one context to the next and Elke this is also something um, that the framework that you develop accounts for right? Yes, uh, indeed. Um, what you mention often presents another problem. There is this uh, tendency to cast victim participants as a homogenous group who all enter these processes with similar identities, experiences, expectations and goals. Uh, while in reality, of course, differences in power, in capabilities or objectives can also exist between participants. Uh, and those may become more pronounced uh, when they engage not in their individual capacity, but through victims groups or organizations, for example. But um, those dynamics are often not taken into account when evaluating victim participation schemes. True. And actually, in, in addition to um, this importance um, of paying more attention to um, actors' identity and interests and that you're hinting at, you also seem to be hinting at this notion of spaces of participation, right? Spaces, formal ones, informal ones. Um, and what's interesting to me is that this idea of participation as a spatial practice uh, that comes from the field of development studies and eh, where it was first introduced to look beyond what happens at the formal, at the institutional level and to make visible everything that's happening in civil society, at the grassroots level, in everyday contexts. And I was wondering, Alka, if you could say a bit more about how the idea migrated to the field of transitional justice. Uh -huh, yes, yeah. so um, victim participation is typically understood as the roles and functions that survivors take up in state-led truth commissions, in trials, in reparation schemes, or in mechanisms around guarantees of non-recurrence. Now, a range of studies have rightly pointed out that these instances of participation, that they're often not far-reaching enough, that participants rarely have decision-making power or ownership in these spaces, that their participation is tokenist or instrumental, and it doesn't change or transform the power balance. But some of these studies also pointed out that it is crucial to recognize that survivors have other spaces where they exercise voice and power, uh, for example, through grassroots support structures, through public events, civil society-led trainings or meetings, and victims often see these so-called informal spaces as integral to their experiences with transitional justice, and they will often engage simultaneously in institutional and informal spaces. Um, a good example of this interplay is the way survivors of the Kokop massacre, uh, for example, have organized in a committee. 
to channel their demands to the state. They have selected representatives and regularly hold meetings to organize, discuss, and strategize at the local level. Since traveling to the formal venues in Guatemala City is time-consuming and costly, and this can be represented in, as Juan explains. Okay, solo, solo uno nada más no tiene la capacidad para, para viajarlo. Because one alone does not have the means to travel. We have organized well, we have organized the committees so we can advance more. Because we have to travel, but first we have to gather money for expenses. And then we can travel, we organize a meeting with the people, and the people know they have their committees. And Juana, on the other hand, offers a different perspective. She does not always feel represented or included in the work of the committee. Her perspectives really urge us to see survivors' associations not only as collective actor or participant, but also as spaces of participation in their own right that are characterized by opportunities, but also difference in interests and even tensions. We file paperwork, and well, then they go. I do not know if they send the files or if they just save them. I really do not know, because there is no... Also, every time they hold their meetings, they do not summon all of us. They only divide us. Juana also addressed her expectations for the committee in the future. We will continue, but it is on the committee that we have to take our cases. I wish that they could really see us, our, our needs that they not only see their own personal interests. So what's striking to me here is that the same thing that we mentioned about having to be mindful of power dynamics and of exclusion in these formal TJ mechanisms, that, that apparently also applies here to these grassroots initiatives and that power dynamics are also at play, which means that people may or may not experience these informal spaces as empowering and that that really depends on their position in the community and on their needs. Um, the other thing I found really relevant in, in what we hear Juan and Juana say um, is actually something that makes me think of last episode that we did on the notion of temporality. And in that episode, we discussed that how the timeframes of transitional justice processes um, often suggest need linear breaks with the past and that that often doesn't necessarily, of course, align with the lived experiences of survivors. Being here, I can see firsthand how the root causes of the internal armed conflict, for example, racism, exclusion and socioeconomic inequality, continue to affect the lives of members of the COCOP community today and of victims of the armed conflict in general. Even though they have been active in these struggles for decades, they are aging and many are also tired because they have not received meaningful reparations. Uh, for example, um, I attended a meeting where young members of the COCOP community were invited to learn a little bit more about the history of the community. And this initiative evolved from a desire of older survivors to engage youths in the continuation of their demands, their struggles for reparations, orders to be upheld. Uh, the activities and mobilization of the community have also evolved uh, from recovering the bodies of the relatives and giving them a proper burial to seeking reparations, not only at the national level, but also at the international level and forms of redress that can really improve their livelihoods, which is the main goal for them. This is illustrated, for example, in the way Juana describes her more pressing demands. But we're suffering now. 
without a job, without a salary. Maybe we're working, but they take advantage and make us work more than what they pay. This is what we're going through right now. Well, this is what we're waiting for, that the government responds for all the facts, for all the things that we lost, all the family members we lost, the things, the rest of the things, houses, everything, the livestock. For Juana and other survivors, both the violence and their struggle to overcome is ongoing. There has been no closure and the trajectory may even continue by future generations. I ask myself because there are many times that I get angry. There are times that we meet, but every time there are no results. There is, there's no answer. The congressmen do not respond. The president does not respond for the crimes of the soldiers. I'm waiting. I'm still waiting if there will be results or not. Will there be an answer or not? About the reparations or not? I do not know, but I ask God that the president answers. I have a son too, but we will see that if, if anything were to happen to me, well, maybe my son will continue to participate, I say. So I feel like we've covered so many important aspects of participation already. We've talked about identities, about spaces, about the notion of time and temporality. But in the end, um, I think the idea is also that this framework should also lead to a different way, or it should at least facilitate a different way of evaluating or looking at the outcome of what constitutes meaningful participation. Right, Elke? Yes, definitely. In the current field, there's often a desire to kind of pinpoint the direct performance or impact of one particular mechanism and that mechanism's participatory modalities at one point in time. But we argue that a broader context-sensitive understanding of participation is also needed, but often lacking. And that's where our framework comes in. It can help shed light on the way participants enhance their social-political position and further their interests by transporting and transforming insights and agency from one space to another and from one moment to another. And how is that way of thinking different from the current way of looking at impact and evaluation? What, what does it imply for the way we research victim participation? Well, it means, for example, we have to reconsider what static, temporary, formal participatory programs can be expected to achieve uh, and also urge these programs to seek more synergies with victims' pre-existing and alternative avenues of engagement. Uh, for example, to acknowledge, facilitate or amplify demands that have arisen there. And it also means that we have to let go of some of these predetermined normative benchmarks of success and um, generally pay much more attention to what participants themselves want from each step of their trajectory. Um, and I think this was also something that emerged very clearly in Gretel's fieldwork. For Juan, for example, it is very clear that he seeks to achieve from his participation in transitional justice processes and what could actually constitute meaningful outcomes for him. It is not fair. Now, the poor people that survived the massacre, they do not have land, they do not have money. We had to come down and flee to the town of Nebach because we were displaced. It is an obligation. We don't have food, we don't have money to eat. Now the government has to buy land for the people. It is an obligation. And this is also the case for Juana. 
that they see our nuestro conflicto, nuestro our conflict, that they see the problems that we're facing. Why did we lose our families? That they recognize it. That is the only thing, Miss. The only thing I demand is justice. Their trajectory has often been very disappointing because of the state's unwillingness to comply with the reparations orders. This is very clear from Juan's testimony. But we are demanding to the government. We have endured thirst. We have endured hunger. We go back and forth in Guatemala City demanding Project Fort Cocop. But it is not fruitful. It is not fruitful. But in other ways, claiming their roles within transitional justice processes has shown survivors' resilience, foregrounded their worth, amplified also their awareness of their own rights and their desire to preserve their memories. Because what we have is strength. We have made the effort. We're worthy. Our lives are worth and we are going to demand it. Our struggle will not stay like this. For instance, what happens if I die? I have a family and the government has to acknowledge them their rights. Because we have to preserve our memories, our stories. So I think these stories of Juana and Juana, they definitely give us a lot to think about. And I want to start to wrap up this episode by thanking Juana and Juana very, very much for their contribution to our episode today. And I think their stories, their accounts, they clearly demonstrate that survivors are aware of their rights and will continue to self-organize and to um, participate in institutional spaces um, as well as in these informal spaces until their demands are met. And I think what this episode also shows us is the importance of paying attention to both grassroots initiatives and, and how those can be both empowering or disempowering, as well as to uh, the state's responses to these initiatives because our focus on participation and participation trajectories and ecologies should, of course, not be understood as a means to let the state off the hook. And I think that the testimonies have made that very clear. For our listeners who want more background information about the Cocop community, about their struggle, we have included several references in um, this episode's show notes, which are available at justicevisions.org, uh, and then you select podcast. Um, and one of the things which you can also find there is a very moving song from the Songs of Resistance compilation that actually narrates the plight of the Cocop community during the conflict. I invite you to have a look at that. And then as for you, Gretel and Elke, I will just thank you for walking us through this complex landscape of victim participation and how it plays out in practice in Guatemala. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again. And please stay tuned for next month's episode. This was Justice Visions. To re-listen to this episode or to browse our archive, visit our website justicevisions.org or subscribe now via Spotify or Apple Music. Justice Visions is made possible through generous funding of the European Research Council. <laughs>